Here y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, back by the woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Back on episode 59, Randy Staley came back by the woodpile to share some of his favorite records and the stories of how he acquired them. Well, Randy's back again to do more of the same. And so without any more pussyfooting, let's get going. The first one I thought I would discuss is the Benny Moten Orchestra. Moten started out, he was headquartered in Kansas City, and he started out, he had to have been a ragtime pianist. And what convinced me was one recording. It's Cater Street Rag on the OK label. He plays such a smooth ragtime piano solo on that. You just know that he had to be a ragtime pianist at one time. Now explain to folks what would be the difference or the relationship between ragtime and jazz, early jazz? Well, I think jazz was kind of developed almost separately from ragtime. Ragtime had a syncopated beat to it, and it kind of arose in different places in the United States uh, at that time. I think we had both white ragtime composers and black ragtime composers, and I'm sure you've heard of Scott Joplin, James Scott, Yubi uh, Blake. Yubi Blake was from the New York School of Show-Off Ragtime, and, and he was an incredible person. He lived to be close to a hundred, and I had the privilege of meeting and talking to really? him at, at ragtime conventions back in the 1980s. <laughs> quite well until he was like in his late 90s. Mm-hmm. Just a fantastic person. He was behind, uh, was it Shuffle Along? It was one of the yes. f- first black produced uh, yes. musicals. He partnered with Sissel, yeah. uh, Noble Sissel. They probably were friends for decades. And then, you know, after the 1930s, Blake just kind of went into obscurity. And But in the ragtime revival in the 1970s, uh, he came back big time. One of the highlights of my musical life was was actually meeting and talking to Mr. Blake. What did he say, or what did you ask him? Well, I asked him, because uh, one of my prized recordings was a, a tune called Sounds of Africa, a piano solo by Blake on the Emerson label. across it there was this kid that had a phonograph collection and he was playing a mint copy of this sounds of Africa on this wind-up and I thought oh boy it's not going to survive I got to talk him out of that record I did get it but the point is is the original title was the Charleston rag and I so I asked him why he was using Sounds of Africa on the record, and it had something to do with copyright. I didn't quite understand it. There was somebody that Blake worked with and probably thought he owned that tune, 
And so Blake probably recorded it as Sounds of Africa just to avoid copyright things because things weren't as easily communicated in those days. And another one of my prized possessions is an original Ampico piano roll of Charleston Rag that Yubi cut himself back in 1917. Ampico piano rolls are one of three forms of what they call expression piano rolls. There's additional holes at either end of the roll that regulate the attack on the piano, you know, whether the pedaling and things like that. So when you play it on an appropriate piano, which I have, it sounds like somebody is really sitting there playing, not a, a mechanical. Right. Yeah. And for young people listening, the piano rolls were these rolls of paper that if a piano player would sit down, I guess with a paper cutter, yeah, uh, it would through paper record every note he was playing. Yeah. And yeah. so then you could play it on a, a player piano at your home. Right. And it'd be like having the piano player in your home. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, there were th at least three different incompatible formats. Of course. They all used the same notes. <laughs> right. But the, the coding on the end, you know, it's kind of like early digital stuff. Mm -hmm. The coding on the end was totally incompatible right. between the three or so different formats. Now, I got you off the subject, but some people assert that, you know, ragtime led to jazz. Would you agree with that? Well, to a certain degree, the ragtime was the music of, say, 1900 to, say, maybe 1915 or so. And then we went into a period of band recordings of what a lot of people call ragged jazz. They're not quite ragtime. Mm but not quite jazz either. And again, it's kind of a flippant description, but you know, they're usually fast, really fast pieces because the, the censors at the time, they didn't like slow dancing. They wanted music yeah. to keep them apart Rick, and yeah, jumping around that, and so they, on. They wanted to lead the copulation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then about the end of World War I was really about when the first jazz recordings came out, the original Dixieland Jazz Band. And the concept of jazz was kind of confused at that time because so many of these bands just thought, well, if you just play loud and, and act funny, you know, that, that's jazz. Well, it was really wasn't. But it, as far as the real difference between ragtime and jazz, I, I just find that hard to put into words. I know we're chasing rabbits, so let's, yeah. let's go back to what you were talking about originally. I'm sorry. Oh, okay, well, yeah, we were back to Benny Moten. Yeah, yeah. I'd forgotten even who we were talking about. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we jumped off. Okay, so he made a, a fair number of okay, acoustic okay records. And when you say okay, this is actually a record label name. Yes, it wasn't yes. meaning they were mediocre. But they were really okay, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and they're, they're relatively hard to find. And it's hard to find them in good shape. This Cater Street rag I mentioned before, that was probably the last one. And they were all issued in the 8000 series on OK, which was a so-called race series. Race records being records that were aimed at African Americans of the, of the time. About 1926, you know, now that we had electrical recording, the Moulton switched over to the Victor talking machine. and. He just generated an incredible uh, 
bunch of records. The first of which was a coupling of a tune called Harmony Blues, which it was the first Benny Moten record I ever got. And it's a, a, a very introspective side. You know, it just gives me goosebumps to this day when I play it. The other side is Thick Lip Stomp, which is kind of politically incorrect, but that's yeah. what they did in those days. But that was a beginning of a series of electrical recordings that reflected Moton's ragtime background. It has this so-called boom-chuck, boom-chuck, boom-chuck rhythm to it. Another one of his great records of the time, also on, on the Victor Talking Machine label, is South, which has endured to this day as a piece in traditional jazz. It was so popular at the time that it was in the Victor catalog for probably 20 years. In fact, I may even have a, a jukebox record of it, which had South on both sides. So one side wore out, they, they played the other. so popular that oh I gotta show you this uh, you brought it yeah Pete Daly the Pete Daly's Chicago and a white group actually recorded a piece called North mm -hmm. in uh, around 1950 that was basically the tune South turned upside down so South goes da 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 well North goes dun dun da 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 dun dun Dun, da, 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 da. It's the coolest thing. <laughs> Up to this point, Moten was leader and pianist. Uh, in 1929, the famous Count Basie joined the group, and the, the, the sound of the band began to change. So now Moten is the director, but the piano parts are handled by Count Basie. Uh, and they generated a bunch of records in the early 30s which really defined the so-called Kansas City sound. And if you've ever seen the movie Kansas City, which it's about 20 years ago, it was basically that sound. Very up-tempo and they just made some really fantastic sides. Just incredible. Two sides that I really like are Prince of Wales, which is a piano tour de force. Yeah, Count Basie was just all over the keyboard on that. Another one was Moton Swing. was kind of like a bridge between, you know, the 20s and the so-called swing era. You began to see how these arrangers were putting things together. Another proud possession of mine is an original poster announcing the appearance of the Moton Band at a place called the Green Lantern 
somewhere between Evansville and Vincennes, Indiana. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a full-size poster uh -huh. on my wall. Actually, I got it from another collector who was liquidating big time. It's just one of those things you never find stuff like that. Right. You know, like movie posters, somehow they ended up hidden under stages and things if you ever watch American Pickers, but these original <laughs> things were not printed on, you know, durable paper stock, and for anything like that to survive, it's just incredible. Anything exciting happened since we talked last? Well, I've picked up a few interesting records that my biggest win this year was Jelly Roll Morton's first band record on Paramount, uh, 1923. The discographies say Big Foot Ham. Mm -hmm. The label says Big Fat Ham. Uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, it's just an incredible record. The interesting thing is Morton redid it on a Columbia in the later 20s, once this was now electrical recording. The label is, says it's by Johnny Dunn and his band, well-known cornetist, trumpet player at the time. But the title was changed to Ham and Eggs, but it's exactly the same tune. Yeah, I think I read uh, Fats Waller used to sell the same song to about three different publishing companies just under different names. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know if he got additional royalties for the different names. Right. I think it was just maybe to cover up that he'd recorded the same tune earlier. Right. <laughs> now, you brought up, you said, electrical recording. Uh, to most folks may not know, in the 78 world, originally there were acoustic recordings and yes. the real tinty. Right. So explain how an electrical recording, how that worked back then and, and why it's so much better. Acoustic recording had a relatively limited frequency range. Uh, you had the advantage of a natural roll-off in response both in the treble and bass, but you still had a very limited frequency range. Maybe barely an octave below middle C and maybe two or three octaves above middle C. You see some of that on the original record jackets once the electrical recording came in. Because now you could record all the way from maybe 30 cycles per second all the way up to maybe eight or 9,000. Particularly on labels that had really smooth surfaces. I mean, it's incredible that the definition you can get on a a record that's pressed on, like German Brunswick's. I've recently been acquiring a few of those, and you hear things like symbols and things that are buried in the grit on, on uh, an equivalent American pressing. Mm -hmm. What I think is also interesting, because you mentioned uh, this range of uh, frequency, yes. but even back then, when the people that had the Victrolas and the other you know, playing devices, they never heard all that was recorded. No. We have the gift to be able to hear all that, and why is that? Uh, well, I mean, we're used to hearing recorded music at, at you know, high fidelity. I, I just wonder how aware people were aware 
when, you know, in mid-25, all of us, 1925, all of a sudden these electrical recordings started coming out because the two biggies, Columbia and Victor, kept it on the lowdown for over a year until, because they wanted to get rid of their old catalogs of acoustic records and as well as build up a good library of electrical recordings. But by the end of 1926, you know, they, they let the cat out of the bag, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's just a world of difference. In, we used to have a local record spin group and one guy would always, we'd have mystery record contests where he had to guess who the band was. Well, one guy really liked acoustic records and unfortunately, I, my ears just couldn't fill in the missing frequencies and all those bands pretty much sounded the same to me. There was just nothing distinctive because you were missing so much definition and frequency range in those things. So electrical recording was a big deal. And actually they had some a purely acoustic wind-up machines that did a fairly good job of, of reproducing those frequencies, electrically recorded frequencies like the Victor Credenza for, for one thing. It had a 16-inch uh, horn built inside that kind of folded in on itself. And those machines sounded so good that people used those for 20 years, up into the 40s. Okay, who we got up now? Jelly Roll Morton. All right. I mean, yeah. we saw last night the Felix the Cat cartoons all accompanied, because they were silent cartoons, but they were accompanied by recordings by the Jelly Roll Morton and Jelly Roll Morton is Red Hot Peppers. Mm -hmm. Just cool stuff. Well, let's talk about his name real quick. Okay. Jelly Roll, I mean... It has double meanings. Well, yeah. I mean, there were, you know, these sexual overtones right. to a lot of the, the names in, in those periods, but as there well are, as tune titles. Plus, it is a little cake. Well, talking. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, there's tunes like, you know, you I get none of my jelly roll and sure. stuff like that. So there's double meanings to a lot of these right. things. A few years back, the Jazz Oracle folks, uh, these are a group of guys up in Canada that do... CD reissues of vintage jazz, basically in Canada because their copyright laws are not as draconian as American. <laughs> I mean, 99 years, come on. Yeah. That means our music, when you clamp all the state restrictions, that we wouldn't be able to freely reissue this music until it's like the 2060s, right. when, when none of us might be around. I think the current life of a recording patent is something like 50 years in Canada, but it's like 99 years here. And so the Europeans and the Canadians have had a field day for the last 50 years on reissues, right. which can't be done here. You can apply to a major record company and say you'd like to use their tune, uh, but they, you know, they charge an arm and a leg. The series that was on HBO... Boardwalk Empire. Yeah. Well, they found out the soundtrack CD for that series the, for the first year, you know, which Vince Giordano's Nighthawks supplied the music and everything to. They found out that it was cheaper to record Giordano and the Nighthawks than to use the original recordings in, in the soundtrack. I mean, that's sad. It's so hard to, 
to generate interest in this kind of music because there's so little exposure to it. Okay, so I was going to mention that this Jazz Oracle label, a few years ago they wanted to compile a CD of Jelly Roll Morton's early band recordings. Mm -hmm. And so I, I had the privilege of working with Joel Osicki, another rabid collector yeah. of, of our kind of music. We both supplied records and Joel, you know, made the digital transfers of those. So you had copies of music that they didn't have? See, the, the thing, when you propose something like this, now you've got to canvas the collectors to find the very, very best copy. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, both Joel and I are condition freaks, as they call uh, as yeah. we call ourselves. So as I mentioned earlier, then his first band recording was this big foot or big fat ham on Paramount. And the interesting thing was that and a, a couple of other Morton's band recordings, they misspelled his name as Jelly Roll Martin, M-A-R-T-O-N. Hmm. It's just, just a little curious fact. Shortly after his first band issues, he did a, a big series of solo piano recordings for the Jeanette label. Now these, of course, are still acoustic, 1923, 1924, but it just showed what a powerful pianist he was. Jim DePogny, once I went to a lecture he gave on piano styles and ragtime and so on, and he said that Morton tended to play piano in a, in a full band style. He was basically substituting for a full band when he played. And Jellero is at least one of the people that have claimed to have invented jazz. Yeah, you know, a lot of people dismiss him as a braggart. Right. Whether that's justified or not, I don't know. I personally have trouble with people that self-promote, but, right. you know, maybe he did invent jazz, or at least one phase of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, all I know is there's almost no such thing as a, as a bad Morton recording, in right. my, yeah. my opinion. So he made these piano solos for... Jeanette showing his full band style of piano playing. And then he made a handful of sides on Jeanette with the New Orleans Rhythm Kings, which was a white group. So I mean, there's hmm. an early example of, you know, cross-race yeah. collaboration, which is great. London Blues and Someday Sweetheart on the OK label. Now this is an interesting recording because it's very problematic. That was one that was, it's very hard to find an undamaged copy. There was something wrong with the way they recorded it, whether it was overcut or what, but the result was that very few plays on a, an acoustic Victrola would end up just stripping the record. So you could look at it, it would look new, but when you played it, you'd hear this spitting sound with every beat. Again, thanks to this collector that I ran into that was liquidating his collection, he had a copy of this OK 8105 that was nearly new old stock. Mm -hmm. 
to the uh, Jazz Oracle CD. I was so happy to get that record because I don't know how many copies I had looked at and auditioned and they were just, they were unlistenable. <laughs> Returning to this uh, okay recording of uh, London Blues and Someday Sweetheart coupling, they actually have made vinyl pressings from the original stampers. Now how they got a hold of those, I don't know but they claim that there's distortion even in those pressings. So mm -hmm. there was something wrong with the original masters. Mm -hmm. and, and my copy, which is as close to new old stock as you can get, if you listen very closely, you can actually hear a little bit of distortion where, so it had been played maybe once or something on mm -hmm. an old machine. Okay, so the next really neat recording by Jelly Roll Group was by Jelly Roll Morton's Incomparables on the Jeanette label. This would have been about 1925 when we had the red Jeanette label replaced the, the blue Jeanette label. This recording is unique and it's the only Morton recording that was made by an actual working band as opposed to a band that just a bunch of guys assembled for recording purposes. And again, I got lucky on this. I got a, what looks like new old stock on eBay from a guy in Western Canada of all places. He seemed to have a small cache of these red label Jeanettes. And what really saved the day was, you know, they usually have photographs of the label and the grooves and things on, on the listing on eBay. But this one, for some reason it came out, the whole surface looked gray, so the record looked a lot, in a lot worse shape than it actually right. was. And when I got it, after I dusted it off, it was basically new old stock. Wow. And I mean, it was in such pristine shape that if you listen carefully, you can tell it's a primitive electrical recording. Now, what do you use to clean records? I know there's different people have different methods. Well, they say that, you know, the simplest thing is just a little dish detergent and water, but you've got to dry them off real quick. Mm -hmm. I mean, somebody, I've talked to people that claim that just an instant is enough to destroy the surface or alter it. And that might be true for record labels like the, those from the Victor Talking Machine that had, they put diatomaceous earth in with the shellac and other components to wear their tungstone styluses to a nice U-shape so it would fit the groove. But the problem with diatomaceous earth is that it's hygroscopic. It absorbs water from the air and swells. And so that's why so many of the so-called scroll victors that you run into sound gritty, like frying hamburger. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, the problem got so bad that, you know, when they were using Victor records for radio broadcasts, there were so many complaints that they asked Victor to run off pressings 
eliminating the diatomaceous earth. And they called those Zeke pressings. And if you, it's in the runout area between the, the, the grooves and the label, there'll be a little Z. Mm -hmm. And I have a handful of those. They're mainly classical records. But there's a world of difference, you know. <laughs> and then, so, so following the Jeanette recording, then Jelly Roll Morton started recording a bunch of stuff for the Victor Talking Machine as, you know, Jelly Roll Morton and his Red Hot Peppers. I mean, those are all classics. It's funny, I mean, I had read that a lot of people thought that those recordings were out of date already. The style of playing was already out of date when he made those recordings. But man, we'd be so much poorer without them. I mean, there's just so many jazz standards in there. Dr. Jazz, which is kind of interesting because I believe it's a King Oliver composition, but Morton beat him to recording. Really? Some of my favorites from that era was like the like burning the iceberg. And yes, yes. This is one where they're all cackling like goats. Man, take that goat out of here. Yeah, every one of those is a classic. I mean, they they were just having a ball yeah, in, the, in yeah. the studio. One of my favorites is Grandpa's Spells, which was issued on Scroll Victor at the time, but an alternate take appeared, oh, about 15 years later on Bluebird. And that's, that's the, the, the take that I like, because that is the version that bands from today that play the old stuff, they tend to play that version. Mm -hmm. Continued recording in that vein until oh, around 1930, I think. And the later recordings were not as successful as the, the stuff from 1926, 1927, 1928. But they're still great. So, so, and that was basically thanks to the Depression. You know, it, it changed the kind of music people would listen to. The, the hot jazz started to become passe. And you know, and you got, I call it weepy 30s music, but nothing wrong with it, but it's not jazz. So Morton, between 1930 and maybe 1934, Morton, I don't believe, was on record. And then in 1934, Wingy Minone arranged a recording session that included Jelly Roll Morton. The rec record wasn't issued at the time, unfortunately. It appeared on a label called Special Editions, which the American Record Company put out for the purpose of collectors and issued, you know, master pressings of both sides. One side was Never Had No Lovin' and the other side was I'm Alone Without You. The second of the two sides actually has a short Morton piano solo, which is great. <laughs> Thank you. 
much of Morton on the first side. They never had no loving, but that's always the side I've always mm. preferred. It's just a great song. So he was kind of on the has-been status at that point. Yeah, yeah. And then you didn't hear anything from him till the late 30s, and then all of a sudden he was rediscovered. That was the era when the revival band started up playing the older stuff and so on. And so all of a sudden you had a whole bunch of records on General, you had a bunch of records on Commodore, and you had a bunch of Morton records on Bluebird. You know, and then he passed away shortly after that. Okay, I'm just going to a few items by Louis Armstrong. You know, everybody's familiar with the Hot Fives and the Hot Sevens and the Louis Armstrong and his orchestra on OK. I mean, they're, they're just, you know, superlative recordings. I thought I'd just discuss a couple of vintage recordings that Armstrong did for other labels, whether legally or not. <laughs> we might have talked a little bit about that last year, but... The first one that I want to bring up is, it is my Desert Island record. If I had just one record to take, mm -hmm. it would be that one. And that's his Vocalion recording. The, the, this was when the Hot Five went across the street and made two sides for Vocalion mm -hmm. under the name Lil's Hot Shots. Lil being Lil's, Lil Armstrong, Lil uh -huh. Harden Armstrong. The, the two titles were Drop That Sack and Georgia Bobo. And I'm assuming that Georgia Bobo refers to some kind of a dance. You know, there were a lot of titles like that back then. issued takes of Drop That Sack, and the first one appeared only on Vocalion 1037. All the subsequent reissues of that piece were from the second take, and over the years I've been fortunate to get near-mint copies of both. <laughs> gives you a, a window into what advantages electrical recording was over acoustic because the hot five sides up to that point sometime in 1926 were all strictly acoustic. Mm. Uh, OK had experimented with its own electrical recording but by and large they were unsuccessful and a lot of the things had to be remade acoustically and looking through my collection in the OK 8000 series, which were the so-called race records, I haven't run across any of them that used OK's in-house recording. They didn't, OK didn't switch to electrical recording until they were bought by Columbia in 1926. And then you got the full wide range, beautiful, beautiful sound. 
but these vocalions, the type of electrical recording they have represents a step in the progression from the primitive electrical recording that Brunswick was using up to what they finally ended up with. The final sound tends to be colored and a bit tubby. It colors the sounds of a lot of the instruments. But this in-between that this vocalion was made with, I call it the in-your-face sound because uh, you listen to mint copies of some of these records and it's almost like the artists are, are right in the room with you. Right. Just gives me goosebumps every time I play these things. As I said, their sides were issued by Lil's Hot Shots, and they certainly didn't fool anybody right. in at the OK Studios. <laughs> so they got in trouble. Well, yeah, he did. That was the uh, head honcho at OK, because he had he and the Hot Five had an exclusive recording contract with OK. So these vocalion sides were, you know, he was breaking his contract, and so the, the head honcho at OK called him in and played the vocalion and he said to Louis, uh, do you know who this is? <laughs> and what gives it away is the vocal, of course, on one side. And Louis said, I don't know, but I won't do it again. <laughs> I mean, it's one of these stories. I assume it's true, but yeah. you know, it's been circulating among the collectors for decades. <laughs> but along the way, Armstrong made four more sides for the Vocalion label as a sideman. But the interesting thing was, of course, there was no vocals, and the cornet was much more restrained. I mean, a great cornet, but it, he didn't leap and jump all over the place like he did mm -hmm. on the Hot Five and, and the earlier Vocalion recording. Mm -hmm. the, the titles on these were Easy Come, Easy Go Blues, The Blues Stampede, I'm Going Hunting, and if you want to be my sugar papa. Beautiful examples of the South Side Chicago sound, small group sound. Just love those things. They were recorded under the name Jimmy Bertrand's Washboard Wizards. Oh. And that kind of stuff, again, the stuff on Vocalion is very hard to come by, particularly in good shape. And then, you know, then we get the OK years, many, many recordings, all of them just great. And then I'll close by just mentioning some sides that are often overlooked, and those are the ones that Louis Armstrong and his orchestra did for RCA. It's RCA Victor now. Uh, in 1932, 1933, they, he had gone to the full orchestral sound rather than, you know, the Hot Five or Hot Seven by that time. These recordings are kind of overlooked because they tend to be, you know, a little more popish, uh, with or without vocals, but they're so well recorded. In the early 30s, RCA Victor changed what kind of microphones they were using. And what you got was a generation of what they call hi-fi victors. Uh, what they did was they built in what they called a presence peak to make this music sound more live, to more reflect what people were used to hearing on their Victrolas, you know, more mid-range and not very much bass and treble. 
uh, I guess the, the, he made something like 15 or 20 sides at you know 32 and 33 and I mean they're all classics mm -hmm. uh, but you know people just don't collect them like they did the okays in the earlier earlier ones I think sometime in the 90s I got a hold of a CD reissue of all of these and just impeccable just beautiful sound I mean you almost swear it was recorded today they're so clear wow. where the sun set in the sky flowers never die baby friends don't fashion by cause that's my home now you played a record last night that was you're talking about jack crawford's version of hurricane yeah yeah that's that is a vinyl you know, test pressing of an original 20s recording that was never released but apparently they still have uh, at least until recently a lot of the metal parts available and they can essentially make a new 78 I out see. of those and the, the beautiful thing is of course the surfaces are like silk you, know, you don't have all the scratch and hiss and whatever generally associated with 78s <laughs> I don't know why this particular recording wasn't issued at the time. It might have been Red Nichols and his Five Pennies and various groups recorded Hurricane several times and the tune became associated with Red Nichols. That might have been why Victor was reluctant to release it. The only other thing I can think of was it was so much hotter than anything else that the Jack Crawford Orchestra recorded previously that maybe they just thought it just wasn't his style mm -hmm. but I mean there's nothing technically wrong with the recording there's no intonation problems or flubbed solos or anything it's just a great record there's so many of these uh, vinyl things floating around we actually had a guy up at the Canadian Collectors Congress which is a group that gets together at the end of April or early May once a year and it was a guy from Sony, which take, took over Columbia and Victor. The, the all-time arch rivals were finally united under one roof. But this guy had a huge library of white label vinyl test pressings. And a lot of them, some of them were by artists that you never like a Victor artist that was recording for Columbia or vice versa, stuff that had never been released and, and collectors knew nothing about. Oh, wow. Just incredible stuff. Lord, I wish I had more of that <laughs> <Yeah>. stuff. <laughs> cool. How did you find this record that you... Played? It was actually that came through eBay, mm -hmm. one of Russ Shore's listings. Mm -hmm. Russ Shore is one of the co-owners of Vintage Jazz Marts, a magazine that comes out three times a year, chock full of articles and mail order auction lists. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he also sells on eBay. And so I get an occasional record or two from him. Last week in Kalamazoo, I went to see the current film La La Land. Uh -huh. It refers to Los Angeles. And there's a statement in there. This Ryan Gosling plays a 
jazz musician who's hung up on jazz from the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. And at one point in the movie, a friend says to him that, you know, you're stuck in the past, jazz is dying on the vine. Uh -huh. You know, and I, I just, that keeps going through my head. You take another giant step backwards and we're back to the 20s and 30s and just feel how out of place we are. Yeah, how bebop killed off called New Orleans jazz. My personal feeling is that once jazz became listening music as opposed to danceable music, it lost its vitality and fun, and it's just become so abstract that, I mean, you can see it's become increasingly marginalized mm -hmm. in the American music scene. I mean, it, it's sad, but, you know, progress is progress, I guess. I guess even, I guess the cakewalk crowd thought, man, this, this ragtime is, is, yeah, is yeah. It stinks and it's, it's going to kill off our... <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, and, and every generation of parents says the current music is the death of civilization Cult. Yeah, or whatever. <laughs> right. <laughs> Okay, we're talking about the Danny Altier Vocalion, which is an extremely rare record. Uh, So-called collector uh, Jake the Snake Snyder, he was a lawyer and he had accumulated 500,078s and had them stored in a ballroom, unused ballroom in a hotel in New York City, and he claimed he had never had this record. Uh, it's just hard to find, and it's on a Vocalion number series, the 15,000 series, that was apparently very poorly distributed, and unfortunately a lot of the records, recordings, only appeared in that series. They didn't appear on the sister label, Brunswick, for instance. Mm -hmm. So my first copy of this Danny Altier Vocalion came through Ted Nelson in Minnesota. We visited a guy that had a bunch of records in his basement and he had a copy of the Danny Altier Vocalion. But of course the good side suffered from the fact that at one point or another somebody had almost thrown the sound box from the Victrola onto the record and it just mm. created a spiraling bunch of craters. And apparently the record was played that way for many times so it just skipped and skipped and skipped and I patiently filled in all the craters with epoxy glue. Oh my goodness. And it, it took a lot of fine tuning. Uh -huh. But I finally got the sucker so that it would play all the way through. Wow. And, you know, you hear a thump or a click, uh -huh. but it plays through. And now Ted has called me just before Christmas and said he's got another copy that doesn't have to drop uh, on it. After all that work. <laughs> so I'm hoping that that record will be waiting for me when I get home okay, after cool. this trip. All right. Okay. <laughs> icon of 78 collecting, Joe Bussard, would be probably yes. the guy. Yeah. And you met him. Uh, it was probably somewhere between 20 and 25 years ago. Okay. I don't know how he got my name, but it was before computers, so he must have called me. Mm -hmm. And he said he was in town at a motel, and he had some records he wanted me to look through. And so it, here it is, August, you know, it's like 90 degrees at sunset, and mm -hmm. the humidity is 90%, and... Mm -hmm. 
here we are fighting off mosquitoes and I'm looking and it's almost dark and I'm looking through these records in the in the, his crate uh, they were all pretty much red nickels in his five pennies on Brunswick which I probably had just about all of them, if not all of them. So unfortunately, we didn't do any business that day. But it was interesting meeting the guy. And of course, last night we saw a short video of some collectors that went to, to meet him. And you could see his record room with oh, all those goodies <laughs> on the wall. <laughs> now, he didn't try to pick your brain about your collection? I don't recall, not at the time. I mean, my collection was a lot smaller 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, I started, as I, I think we talked last year, I started collecting around 1970, but I spent a decade just going around junking, looking for records at garage sales and flea markets and stuff like that, solidifying my taste. And it wasn't until about 1980, I met a guy named Larry Gennetti at the Union Phonograph and Records show who had bought you know, a collection of 35,000 jazz 78s all in one fell swoop. And he invited us over because he was finally starting to sell some of this stuff off. And they had belonged to a guy that went into the Lion and Healy's music shop in Chicago back in the 20s. And he said, I want every jazz record you got in stock and every jazz record that you get in stock from here on in. So every one of these records was in excellent condition or better. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started getting into territory bands and some of the more esoteric black bands and so on because I knew even at that time that you can always get another Louis Armstrong okay, but you're not going to run into some of these territory bands that only played in a, a small region and they were only recordable when you know the record company came to them rather than them coming, coming, going to New York or Chicago or someplace like that. So that was basically I spent a summer buying records from this guy and that, that got me started on the so-called really good stuff. And I've never stopped since. (laughs) Some of the holy grails of 78s, of of course, are the Black Patty label, which what lasted about six or seven months. Something like that. It was black owned and it was a black business effort that that survived less than a year. And they issued, I don't know, maybe... 80 records. I think there's an issue of 78 quarterly that mm-hmm. has all the all the black patties. And in there. maybe they only put a hundred copies of, of each. Right? Possibly, because yeah. for all I know, it might have been mail order only. So you actually have two black patties. Yeah, they're both jazz. One is by Hightower's Nighthawks, and I forget the name of the other one. But and I was lucky enough to get those from one collector over the years. But from the same collector in more recent years, I was able to purchase a. Black Patty record sleeve, and that's almost unheard of, you know. And I thought paying three hundred and fifty dollars for that, I'm out of my mind. Well, just a matter of months later, on eBay, another Black Patty sleeve went for over thirteen hundred dollars. Oh my goodness! Wow. And so now I said, well, now I, since I store all my records in durable, hard, you know, cardboard sleeves. Uh-huh. I need a so-called junk black patty uh-huh. for my sleeve plus record label collection. And believe it or not, 
a year ago, a Vernon Delhart record showed up on Black Patty. I mean, Jeanette must have pressed Vernon Delhart on every single label they had anything to do with. So now the two have been married, so to speak. <laughs> I just love those, you know, those rare records, and you try to match the record with the very style of sleeve that was current at the time the record right. was issued. Yeah, some of the sleeves are nice. They're actually a little, almost like sheet music or something. They have. Oh, well, again, one of the crown jewels is is the Vocalion race sleeve. It shows a, a black fellow playing a guitar, and then there's a, a woman, some people say she's white, some people say she's black, dancing in the background. Mm -hmm. And apparently, those bring big money. And I have about a dozen of those at home. They, they came on some new old stock Vocalions that I got from a uh, phonograph collector about 50 miles west of me. He retired, got rid of the collection, and then he had these 8,078s on his front porch, enclosed front porch. And, you know, he'd been given ridiculous offers for the entire 8,000 records. And I said, you know, I argued that, well, you know, I pay more, but I buy the kind of records I want. Mm -hmm. So I spent $500 on records with him, and it didn't even make a dent in what he had. And, but the records he had were new old stock Vocalion race records that apparently came out of the Brunswick Vocalion pressing plant in Muskegon, Michigan. So it, it's just, wow, those are the kind of days you, you just wish you could live forever. Right. Or pull a uh, Guy Lombardo and say, when I go, I'm going to take my records with me. <laughs> <laughs> In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram using the name Spun Counter Guy. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. Thank you.